The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to the book of Esther, right before the book of Job in your Old Testament, as we consider this narrative section of Scripture through a summer series that will probably go into September. And uh, I was, as I was reading and studying this book and thinking about the Jewish culture and uh, this place in history and kind of the intertestamental time of, uh, of, of history, and it reminded me of something my father would say to me um, years ago. And uh, my father had once speculated on why, in his observation, there were so many successful Jewish entertainers and comedians. And this is, we, ha- we don't have any Jewish connection in our family. This is just my father's observation. And uh, he just made the observation that a, a people whose history is filled with hardship and trial, must learn survival by way of telling stories, by way of humor and laughter. And in some sense, you can see the book of Esther as an expression of the Hebrew culture of an oppressed people, of a people now who've experienced oppression and foreign control for several centuries, and the, the pressure to assimilate, the pressure to water down the pressure to let go of your orthodoxy? And how do you respond when you are a minority oppressed people? Well, one response is satire. And another response is resting in the sovereign goodness of Almighty God. In many ways, that's the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a wonderful drama and satire of poking fun, in a sense, of the Persian empire under which the the Jewish people found themselves under their thumb. And yet, without mentioning the name of God, expresses a bold trust in the sovereign providential working of God in and through various circumstances to protect and preserve his people. Well, let me read in chapter 1 as we open up into this series in the character sketch of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Hasharus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be a master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we would ask at the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts, I be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Not long after I became a Christian during my junior year of high school, 
I had a big decision to make. Whether I would continue to play football for my high school. I had played football since I was in third grade and I had never missed a game. But in my new Christian faith, I began to realize what a grotesque idol football had become in my life. My heart longed to play under the Friday night lights of Texas football. And yet when spring practice began, my heart was not in it. And it showed in my performance, my lackluster performance. My stock plummeted in the eyes of the coaches. Yet over the summer, as I grew in my new faith, I began to understand that it was possible for me to honor God if I learned to play for his glory. But I knew it would come at a cost. I knew that I would have to resist much of what was practiced by my teammates, which regularly practiced vulgarity, crude humor about females, and the practice of drunkenness. I had to stand up, stand up for a re- reputation greater than mine. And you need to understand that the team of players we had our senior year at my high school had great potential. We had speed. We had four players on our team who were ranked in the top ten in the country in the sprint relay and track. We had an an offensive line with the average weight of at least 275 pounds. We had size. Well, early on in the season, we almost beat one of the top teams in the country. And we went on to pummel our other opponents for a couple of weeks. But then we had our first Saturday afternoon game. And in a brilliant act of foolishness, the core leaders of our team decided to have a drinking party the night before. And so the core of our team showed up to the Saturday game hungover and dehydrated. And they played horrible. And in fact, during halftime, the coach was so enraged, he lamb-blasted us. And by the time the second half begun, guys were sobering up, and we went out and caught up, almost caught the other team, but it was too little too late, and we lost. And it was the beginning of the end of our entire season. As we lost players, as we lost respect, as we lost discipline, as we lost leadership, and ended up going five and five, poorly striking below expectations. And then one great act of defiance, one of our lead linebackers who was basically kicked off the team by the coach had one great act of defiance when he showed up to one of the final games and you need to understand our head coach's last name was Wood. And this player and his friends brought logs and began a chant in the stadium Fire wood, fire wood, fire wood. And it's half comical, but also a grave expression of defiance and disrespect. I think about that team as I think about the greatness of Persia. A greatness and a dominance and this little nation of God's people embedded within I think about 
Persia's poor leadership. Its lack of self-control that was destined to decay in self-destruction. Like my football team. And I think about myself and a few other Christians on that football team trying to be a witness. Trying to have a presence. And yet realizing, surrounded by decadence and greatness all around, trying to be faithful, and yet do, having little impact on, or towards changing the tide of this whole team. The Jews were a small and oppressed people, struggling to resist the temptation to simply assimilate into pagan culture to preserve their identity. And yet, in this drama we find that the Jews are given opportunity to rise up and make an impact. But they must trust and wait for God to work and faithfully follow his lead. Our story begins by just chronicling the greatness of this vast empire, this, va- this empire of kingdom of King Ahasuerus, who most scholars believe was either King Xerxes or perhaps Artaxerxes in the ancient Persian Empire. Uh, And this king had acquired control over 127 provinces, many ways the remnants of the former Assyrian and Babylonian empires, and basically the whole known world at that time, at least in terms of the, the Near East. And not content to keep all the taxpayer dollars to himself, Uh, This king proposed a great feast for all of his officials and servants. They invited the army and the nobility, the governors. And it was his great aim to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. That was his goal, to put all of that on display. And not for a short time, but for a great length of six months. That's quite the party. Many years ago, my parents went to a wedding in Mexico City for one of my father's co-workers, and the wedding party lasted five days. These people partied in the spirit of the Persians. Well, not to be content with six months, he went on to have to propose an encore of seven days of festival feasting in the intimate quarters of the court garden. Now, the author of this text writes like an eyewitness, profiling the lifestyles of the rich and famous, recording various details of cotton curtains and cords of fine linen, marble pillars, couches of gold, pavement filled with mother of pearl and precious stones. And all these lavish furnishings were accompanied by a lavish abundance of wine given from the king's bounty. A great drinking party was the true activity for the occasion. And this king offered an edict permitting people to drink as much or as little as they chose, under no compulsion whatsoever. In God's kindness to me, the abuse of strong drink has not been a particular weakness of mine, but I've had occasion to be around others for whom it was. The date I chose for my senior prom in high school 
talked me into joining her group of friends who were chartering a bus to take us to prom. And there, dozens of us were decked out in tuxedos and prom dresses right there in the school parking lot. And no sooner had we left the lot did the beer cans begin to pop open. And the driver took us all the way across town to a very elegant Houston restaurant. And to the embarrassment of myself and a few other sober members of our party, our colleagues began to reinforce the typical stereotype of teenage behavior. No chaperones. And yet parents had the peace of mind that we would arrive safely at the prom. Such is a culture of decadence and delusion and dim judgment in the spirit of the Persians. Well, at least the Persians had the dignity to separate the men and the women as Queen Vashti held her own feast for the women. And they seemed to have made it to the very last day without significant incident when the king had one last thing to show off, his lovely queen. And so he sent her a summons by way of his eunuchs. He saved the best for last. He wanted to impress everyone. He built up all their expectations to see her in her beauty and glory. And then the awkward moment came when the queen didn't. The whole world stopped at her defiance, her refusal. And it's interesting to me that the royal court did not make an excuse for her. Why did they not save face by keeping it a private matter? They immediately seemed to make this a public matter. It makes us wonder if there was another agenda at work. But however things were developing, the king predictably erupts into great rage. Something must be done. And we are not told why the queen behaved the way she did. There is no evidence, to my knowledge, that she was commanded to come wearing only her crown, as some have suggested through the years. I tend to propose that perhaps she found the prospect of appearing before hundreds of drunk men, gawking at her, less than appealing. Perhaps it was simply beneath her dignity. Maybe she was picking a fight with the king. Maybe it was an opportunity for her to get out of the queen business altogether. We don't know. The text does not say. And yet it becomes the very providential occasion for God to work in the way that only God can bring about deliverance for his people. Well, the embarrassed king is outraged. This is totally inconceivable. But rather than impulsively pass judgment on the spot, and without even a court trial, he calls forth his respected advisors, his seven counselors who were versed in the laws of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be repealed, and their spokesman proposed the following, making his case that this great insult was not only against the king, but against the entire realm, against every official and against every man 
in his little kingdom. They warn of a great disturbance. That when women hear of the queen's behavior, they will show contempt towards their husbands. And so the chief counselor proposes to make of the queen a great example. That there is a greater cause here to protect the honor of all husbands and authorities. And so they counsel the king to banish the queen from his presence. And that her title be given to one better than she. And so such is the reflection of the sad, sick desire of men. An idolatrous lust for honor and perhaps a self-centeredness in seeking after a new trophy wife. It reminds us, if you're familiar with history of King Henry VIII, who after annulment, after execution, always in search of a better queen. And we'll notice that in the decree that goes out that it adds as a corollary that because of this great act of the royal court, all women will honor their husbands now. That'll fix the problem. That'll set her straight. Honor her husband by rejecting the queen and respecting the local sovereignty of every man in his own household as the master of his house. I believe that this is written with deep irony and satire. This is the oppressed Hebrews seeking to poke fun back at a culture deeply arrogant and self-centered and godless and ruthless. And it points out one of the fundamental flaws in human nature. Yes, men and their desire for respect and kings will always require honor. But one of the ironies of this law is that it's utter nonsense and is no more enforceable than the prospect of controlling how much people drink. To try to fulfill this law is to merely feign obedience and honor. One cannot order or require genuine respect. Government is powerless. To regulate and control certain behaviors and the deep desires of the heart. In fact, this whole legislation is missing the heart of the matter entirely. Yes, men want and desire respect. But they cannot appeal to government to secure it for them. They cannot earn it, but it is something that can be developed. It is something that can be nurtured by way of sacrifice and service, the very things that the pastors addressed weeks ago as we explored Ephesians 5, as we talked about how the gospel transforms marriage, as it transforms love and respect in the proper context of husband and wife, where a man is learning to lay down his life for his wife and children. And so as we put on display the way of paganism, the way of the world, the way of blindness and ignorance, it's time to point out a counter-kingdom a transformational understanding of what truly changes the heart. And I begin with these simple words 
of the Lord Jesus to his disciples when he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If there is anyone who deserves respect and honor and unchallenged obedience, it's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord God Almighty himself. And, you know, there's an impulse in this king that is a spark of the divine, this, this desire to put on display greatness and power and glory and generosity and lavish gifts. There's something about the divine spark in that. And yet it fails to recognize that there is only one king who truly has all power, glory, honor, and splendor. There is one king who is true master and owner of all things, who has borrowed nothing, who has nothing on loan, and yet makes every human being his debtor. When he gives out lavishly, it is not bounty that he has taken from others. And in a similar manner that, like this king of Persia, the great king himself did suffer rejection did suffer humiliation in the garden, at Sinai, in the wilderness, in the land of Canaan, during his itinerant incarnational ministry in Palestine. Our God is a king who has been rejected by his bride, who has been refused And yet we have a God who in his holy wrath would be fully justified in banishing his bride forever and casting her far from his presence. And truly that will be the case for those who stubbornly refuse him and reject him in this life. We have a God and king who has sought to reconcile his bride to himself, who has pursued and wooed his lover, to win her back, to draw her, to soften her heart against him. And not driven by ego, not driven by pride and arrogance, not by a consuming passion for control and abuse, but for the display of his marvelous grace and mercy, to show his rich depths of affection and compassion towards a people so steeped in idolatry and brokenness and self-centeredness. We were a people exiled. We were a people rebuked. We were a people tarnishing our sin. We were a people cast out from the courts of God. And yet the Lord has opened up a new and living way by which we may appear before him, washed, 
cleansed, clothed in proper garments, and have access to the throne of God by the very blood of Christ, the bridegroom who laid down his life for us. Jesus calls us not to lord over others in the way of the Gentiles. Certainly not like Persia's king or his minions, not in our marriages, not in our parenting, not in any of our other vital relationships. My wife and I were convicted this past week about some of the ways we have treated our children recently. And we came to the conviction that we needed to apologize to our children. We actually had a Bible study about it last night where we had to confess to our children using words and tones that were harsh and setting expectations for them that were inappropriate. And a lot of it had to do with cleanliness in the house. And we want our children to respond to our instruction and expectations that they take ownership of the home and cleanliness. And those are certainly right and good for our children to respond, to obey, to be respectful. But it's unacceptable for us to come at them with harsh, demanding, and oppressive tones and expectations. And so my wife and I have made a pledge to work on speaking graciously, even if it must be firmly. As we understand how the gospel must break into our own home culture. You see, there is no culture where the gospel is not needed to tear down, to restore, to correct, and to heal. And the gospel breaks down the cultural idols of the Persians as it breaks down the cultural idols of Americans. We live in a day and age where there is much addiction to strong drink. There is still much abuse of power, many displays of arrogance, all kinds of issues of control, obsession with appearance. The idolatry of seeking other people's approval, of saving face, of making one appear better than he or she truly is at heart. And it may be easy for us to critique and satirize the Persian Empire for its debauchery and its foolery, and yet we too live in a day where there's a great and idolatrous show of wealth, an ingrained impulse to impress others, a pretentiousness about having it all together. And I observe that this attitude invades the church and invades believers, even the most mature. It inhibits true fellowship because of a lack of humility and a lack of self-awareness. Friends, we must allow the kingdom of God to invade our little kingdoms. We must acknowledge that there is one true king over all creation, over every household, over every church, and over every relationship. Husbands, you're called to humbly serve your wife and not demand of her. Husbands, we are called to sacrifice for our children without resentment. Wives, yes, you are called to honor your husbands, even and especially when they don't love you the way they ought, as Christ does. 
Like Vashti, some women seek to shame and humiliate their husbands as a sweet act of revenge. Perhaps in this series, we can learn from Esther's example, who had a gargantuan task, a tremendous expression of faith and humility, offering up Christ-like service for her people, interceding on their behalf at the risk of her own life. That'll be a theme that we look forward to exploring in weeks to come. Friends, we live in one of the greatest empires the world has ever known, and certainly one of the greatest in our own time. You and I are not necessarily oppressed by an enemy power, though we can easily be seduced by waywardness and idolatry. We can be lulled into thinking that this is heaven. It is not. We must be weary of becoming too satisfied with the things of this life that are mere shadows and illusions of the reality to come. We are residents of another kingdom, and we are on a great journey. Friends, you and I are responding to an invitation to a great feast. You and I are on a guest list, though we are not nobles. We are not respected officials. We are nobody great nor deserving. In fact, we are ill-deserving. We are those whom Jesus spoke about in the parable of the great feast, where the king told his servants to go out to the highways and the byways and compel them to come into my banquet. We are called to a great banquet where we will enjoy a merriment and joy greater than wine can produce. Listen to the heart of Jesus expressed just hours before his trial and crucifixion. He said to the twelve, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he went on to add, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And Jesus in that same setting informed his disciples that he was going on to prepare a place for all of us. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be as well. We have a king who delights in us and does not begrudge us. We have a God and King who serves us and does not use us. Our King desires to be with us and us with Him and is preparing a place that puts to shame all the McMansions of this culture. And our King is not arbitrary or ruthless, but rather is long-suffering and patient, accepting us and adopting us as His very own. Back in 2004, my wife and I went to a great wedding, the greatest wedding we'd ever attended. Down in Shreveport, Louisiana, my best friend from college and the best man from my wedding married a girl from Shreveport. Her father was a very wealthy and successful businessman and threw threw a great bash for his only daughter. There were hundreds at this wedding reception, professionally catered with centerpieces on the dinner tables that were easily hundreds of dollars each. There was a live band from New Orleans playing uh, delicious music, if you could say such a thing. 
and we had a grand and even, I would say, godly time. But there was an occasion the night before that we arrived to the rehearsal dinner, and somehow I had missed the instruction. It was a very formal affair. And I had a jacket on, but I felt underdressed. And there's that awkward moment of feeling underdressed and feeling out of place. And while it probably wasn't a big deal to the other guest, I felt it. And it was that same feeling of being out of place on that football team, of being out of place on that bus, of Israel being out of place in Susa, the capital of the Persians. Friends, we are called forth to a kingdom and a feast where we will never feel out of place, where we will be accepted, that we will be clothed, that we will be welcomed, a place where there will be no more abuse, no more drunkenness, no intimidation, no rejection, yet full of acceptance, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, where we will feast and drink before his glorious presence forever and ever. Let's pray. The gracious God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you for welcoming and inviting us to your great feast. And we long for that day when we will see all of your glory and splendor and power and majesty. And when we will be at peace and be accepted in your presence to worship and magnify you forever and ever and ever. Sustain us until that day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.